You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. Welcome to Bridging the Political Gap. This is our first show addressing Watergate. As, and as you cover the Nixon administration, there are so many things that do happen in the second term. But Watergate really is a thing that begins to dominate when we get into to early to middle 73, 74, um, until the resignation. Um, and I started this today because this is going to be a little bit out of the the usual context of the show where we're taking you through a timeline because I want to examine what Watergate really was um, and we have an excellent video or audio from a video <laughs> of from the Prager University that really does explain this war between Richard Nixon and the press and I started this out with Sally Quinn who was from the Washington Post who was the girlfriend of Ben Bradley who was the Washington Post editor um, and you hear this disdain that she holds Richard Nixon in um, that should tell you right off the bat that you're not going to be dealing with a biased news uh, an unbiased news source um, when you start dealing with the press that was at war with Richard Nixon and I think what you'll see over the next hour and a half because this is a little bit longer show is this running theme by the press of we hated him but we treated him fairly And I think it's an amazing uh, lack of self-awareness at best, and that's being generous with most of these people. And I think one organization I I struggle with having any respect for, and that's the Washington Post, namely Bob Woodward, Carl Bernstein, Elizabeth Drew, who uh, I'm not sure what her relationship was to the Post, but she was involved in this this, this horrible night of self-satisfying, you know, patting themselves on the back on the anniversary of Watergate about how wonderful they all were. And and it'll it'll leave you disgusted if you uh, have any feelings of fairness at all. And we're going to go through that. Um, And I'm going to be up front. I think anybody who's looked at this, our podcast knows that I am a fan of Richard Nixon. I think he was arguably one of our four greatest presidents standing alone with Washington, Lincoln, Franklin Roosevelt, and Richard Nixon, and then maybe arguably Ronald Reagan. But no one faced a harder landscape, a more complicated uh, situation than Richard Nixon did. Washington was setting up a country. Lincoln was fighting the Civil War, and the, and the Union was in huge trouble. But it was a clear divide, uh, dividing line there between the North and the South. Franklin Roosevelt is fighting the obvious evil of Nazis and uh, of uh, Imperial Japan. Um, countries, One country uh, bombed us um, at Pearl Harbor. 
so there was obvious lines there. This was a, 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 a third world fight between us and the Soviets and the Chinese. No one knew exactly where they were. If you listen to Lyndon Johnson talk about Vietnam, you didn't know how far you could push fighting uh, the North Vietnamese because you didn't know what agreements were there. And it's a very complicated world situation that, uh, that both Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon faced. And I chose these two to really focus in on um, in our podcast because it is such an example of, of our leadership, even in its most trying time of this generation, uh, rising to the occasion. And, and Watergate is the one flaw all the way around. Um, I don't think our the, the generation of leaders as a whole handled it well. I don't think Richard Nixon handled it well. So, uh, but so Watergate is a is a thing. But, but what you will see is that Richard Nixon was fighting a media that hated him, and is totally driving the narrative today, even to this day, uh, that somehow or another they were justified and they were fair to him, and they weren't. I think the most glaring example is the Washington Post. And we're going to talk about that. First, I want you to look at who their lawyer is, is Joe Califano. Listen to him and things that he says. We're going to, we're going to take a look at Mr. Califano. Then we're going to take a look at Catherine Graham, the owner of the Washington Post, the publisher of the Washington Post. Here's a woman who, who uh, published the Pentagon Papers, got into a legal fight with Richard Nixon, allowed Ben Bradley to run amok a um, over the Nixon administration, and not even the previous administration, she used to go vacation with President Johnson. And then Ben Bradley, who I don't really cover much in here, uh, just because of time constraints, here is a man who partied with the Kennedys, who listened to illegally obtained FBI wiretaps of Martin Luther King Jr. and parties in Georgetown. And uh, he didn't say a word. And yet he he stood over top of the Washington Post that brought down the Nixon administration. Now, Having said all that, a crime was committed by Nixon's uh, uh, employees. Um, he did what I think was a very human thing and tried to protect them. It's a you know obstruction of justice. I, I, to some extent, it might be debatable. We're going to look at that as we look at Watergate. But clearly, his own men brought him down, and you cannot, at the end of the day, absolve the fact that there was a crime. But there is more to this story, and I hope that as you listen to that, that is what you come away from. But we're going to look in this episode at the press and its hatred of Richard Nixon and its absolute total lack of of uh, self-examination or, or its inability to look at its own role. Um, and, and, and the press is not a monolith. I mean, let me get away from, from that, too. But clearly one organization, the Washington Post, is an issue. And then individuals, Dan Rather, David Brinkley... Etc. But we're also going to look at this because I, I think it's important to say this because I had a good relationship when I was an elected official with the press. Richard Nixon had a good relationship with members of the press and some legendary figures in the press. We're going to hear from them: Howard K. Smith, Mike Wallace, Ted Koppel, Barbara Walters—true giants in the press and uh, the media—and you're going to hear from them as well. So I hope you enjoy this episode of Bridging the Political Gap as we start down the road of Watergate. And let's start with former Lyndon Johnson advisor turned Washington Post lawyer Joseph Califano. Johnson never liked or trusted Nixon. It goes way back to the time he was in the Senate 
and Nixon was in the Senate. Yeah, Johnson dislikes uh, Nixon. That's what Mr. Califano just told you. Let me quote from The Vantage Point by Lyndon Johnson, Perspectives of the Presidency, 1963-1969, on page 547 and 548. Lyndon Johnson. I never shared the intense dislike of Richard Nixon felt by many of my fellow Democrats. I had served with him in the House of Representatives and in the Senate, and I was Senate Majority Leader during most of his term as President of the Senate. I considered him a much maligned and misunderstood man. I looked upon Nixon as a tough, unyielding partisan and a shrewd politician, but always a man trying to do the best for his country as he saw it. I did, however, disagree strongly with his political philosophy. I believe that if he were elected, he would certainly try to undo many of the hard-won achievements of the new frontier and the great society. Hello? Well, you just called to wish you a Merry Christmas. I suppose you're up, aren't you? It's 9 o'clock? Yes, sir. That was a fine picture of you with the, the little boy in the paper. That uh, it was uh, Lucy, Lucy's boy, I think. Yes, yes, yeah. Yes. You made it possible for Linda and her marine husband. I'm sure you picked him up, brought him down. Great. Right. Very happy and joyful. He's as cool as I know. Well, that was. Well. Well, anytime you know, there's that's always that's what we have to have. Well, you. Uh, I hope you're feeling well. You look good in the, the picture. I, you know, you can't tell much about pictures. No, no, I'm, we're in, uh, we're in Washington. Are we going to try to see that we're like everybody else? We're going to try to have dinner between football games. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, I, I think you're going to win. I'm, if, if they win, they play in Dallas next, don't they? Right. I envy you, boy. Those are those are great kids. I, good. Well, Merry Christmas. I guess you must be happy with all the grandchildren there, huh? We are having a wonderful All right. Good. Well, we uh, we're so uh, so glad that you're all together and that everybody's healthy. Fine. Fine. Good. Good. You tell uh, now. You tell Lyndon now that you know you're the only one to talk to him. Don't tell him not to not to wear himself out. Keep keep well. Keep. Yeah. We sure will. Bye. Goodbye. Yeah, she, she's, uh, I don't think she's quite up yet, but I'll, I'll tell her as soon as I get up. I tell you, you can just feel the hatred between the two and Johnson's hatred of Nixon just shining through that whole call, can't you? <laughs> Nixon replaced Haldeman with Kissinger's former deputy. General Alexander Haig had been appointed the Army's vice chief of staff the previous year. The Washington Post's lawyer, Joe Califano, warned him he was stepping into a minefield. And he said, Al, for heaven's sakes, don't take this job because we've got Nixon. We're going to destroy him and you'll go with him. I'll let you make up your own mind about what Mr. Califano is or isn't and how true his statement is based on what you've just heard.
Now let's turn to the publisher of the Washington Post, Catherine Graham. Here's a phone call featuring Lyndon Johnson calling her to tell her what her reporters ought to be covering. And you listen to just how he just flirts and says the most outlandish things, and she just giggles and laughs. You tell me what you make of it. Hello, my sweetheart. How are you? Well, I'm fine. Are you? You know, the only one thing I dislike about this job is that uh, I'm married and uh, I can't ever get to see you. I just hear that sweet voice and uh, it's always on telephone. And I'd like to break out of here and be like one of these young animals down on my ranch, jump a fence. But do you know what I tried to do in the Point Hill Commission the other day, the K. Graham Commission? Yeah. I talked all day long and into the night on that, including talking to you. But uh, they did Justice Warren turned the justice down, Justice Department down. They catch him back and then went to him. He wouldn't do it. I had to come in here and plead with him and finally got him to do it. Everybody else wanted to turn it down. Dick Russell, I had to talk to him four times. Oh. Uh, but... Uh, uh, we we went through with with the with all that thing. Now, you know where I had to talk to him. Russell was in Winder. Dirksen was in Illinois. Humphrey was on the beach. Mansfield was on the beach in Miami in houses that people become popular to lend them to them. Yeah. Uh, Charlie Halleck was uh, was out hunting uh, uh, turkey. Gosh. Now there wasn't a human here, yeah. and they're not here now, and they're not working now, and they're not passing anything, and they're not going to. Now somebody has got to. Instead of just writing the stories about how the pages live, or about uh, 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 Bobby Baker's girl, whether he had a girl or whether he didn't, uh, 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 is not a matter that's going to settle this country. But whether we have justice and equality is pretty damned important. So I'd like for them to be asking these fellows, where did you spend your Thanksgiving holidays? Tell me about it. Was it warm and nice? And write a little story on it. Uh, uh, because we were here and we're going to have to do it now. If you don't, they're going to start quitting here about the 18th of December, and they'll come back about the 18th of January, and then they'll have hearings and rules committee till about the middle of March, and then they'll pass. Now, I can hear you saying in Catherine Graham's defense, he called her, he's the one flirting, she's having to be polite because he's the President of the United States. But here's something interesting from a documentary about Lyndon Johnson's wife, Lady Bird Johnson, who is, by the way, one of my favorite first ladies. She is an extraordinary woman, um, and I, 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 you know, she built her, her radio TV empire. Granted, she had a little help from him, but she was a businesswoman and a very brilliant lady, all on her own. So let me say that because I, I actually do admire Lady Bird Johnson quite a bit. But here's Catherine Graham. It's obvious she knows the Johnsons, and quite well. While recuperating at the ranch, Johnson entertained friends from Washington, like the Washington Post publisher, Philip Graham, and his wife, Catherine. You couldn't control him in any way, and he was always doing too much or taking a drink on the sly when he was supposed to be recovering from this heart attack. And he imposed on her terribly. He would call for dinner at 10 at night, and she did everything without, I would have killed him. Well, everybody's entitled to have friends, and I'm not knocking the fact that they're friends, but don't have a standard for one president and not for another. What's good for a Democrat is good for a Republican. 
And then don't try to say that you are unbiased when you are clearly biased. I'd have more respect for some of these people if they'd have just said, hey, look, I didn't like him, and I did the best I could for it not to show, rather than what they did to Richard Nixon. Even if, as Nixon said later in another interview, he gave them the sword and they ran him through it. You know, it's one thing for the Democratic Party to do something. It's another for the press to be an open conspirator in it. Now, let's take a listen to the Prager University uh, audio about Watergate that explains it. And it's from Hugh Hewitt, who is also now not only a TV syndicated radio personality, but he is also the president of the Richard Nixon Foundation. The most famous political scandal in American history is, of course, Watergate. It's so famous that even now, 50 years after it happened, almost every scandal of any kind comes with an obligatory gate after it. If you ask most people to explain what Watergate was all about, they draw a blank. If they know a bit of history, or perhaps they lived through it, they might say something like this. It was about a bungled break-in that brought down a president. That's true. But the break-in is the least significant part of the story. Watergate was first and foremost a political war between the president, Richard Nixon, and the media, which in those pre-cable days meant ABC, CBS, NBC, The New York Times, and The Washington Post. The media's aim, in the words of British historian Paul Johnson, was to use publicity to reverse the electoral verdict of 1972. Why? What did the media have against Nixon? That's a complex question, but we can essentially boil it down to three things. One, he was despised by the East Coast liberal elite, of which the Washington press corps was a key component. Two, he was a staunch anti-communist. The media considered the communist threat to be overblown. Three, he refused to abandon South Vietnam. Nixon insisted on a peace with honor. The media was entirely anti-war. Even though Nixon spent most of his adult life in New York and Washington, he never fit in. Born in a small town in California, there were no Ivy League degrees on his resume. To make matters worse, while not being a part of McCarthyism, he made his reputation aggressively exposing Alger Hiss, a communist in the U.S. State Department in the late 1940s. After serving as vice president under Dwight Eisenhower for eight years, he ran against and nearly defeated John F. Kennedy, the paragon of East Coast elitism in 1960. Then, eight years later, and much to the media's dismay, Nixon mounted an improbable political comeback to win that year's presidential election. And then, as if rubbing the media's nose in it, he won again in a 49-state landslide in 1972. Something had to be done. Ironically, Nixon's own people provided the opportunity the media had been waiting for. On June 17, 1972, five men associated with the Nixon re-election campaign broke into the offices of the Democratic National Committee headquarters in the Watergate office building in Washington, D.C. Presumably, they intended to gather information about the Democrats' campaign strategy. Whatever their purpose, it was a painfully dumb plan that turned catastrophic when the burglars were caught in the act and arrested by D.C. police. Nixon found out about it, like everyone else, in the morning papers. Initially, he didn't think it was a big deal. I had been in politics too long, he later wrote, and had seen everything from dirty tricks to vote fraud. I could not muster much moral outrage over a political bugging. Today, most would conclude that if he had simply acknowledged his campaign's responsibility, owned it, as we say, fired those responsible and apologized, the whole sorry mess would have been rendered the minor incident it was. But as historian Evan Thomas noted, Nixon wasn't paying attention. 
and when he was confronted with the problems below deck, he didn't really engage. By the time he did, it was too late. So the scandal grew beyond his control. Three men made sure of that. A publicity-seeking judge, a revenge-seeking FBI official, and a partisan special prosecutor. The judge was John Sirica. Suspecting a vast conspiracy, Sirica threatened the burglars with lifetime prison sentences if they didn't rat out the people who authorized the crime. The media loved Sirica. For a time, he was the most famous jurist in the country. The vengeful official was FBI Deputy Director Mark Felt, known by his code name Deep Throat. Felt thought that he deserved to become the head of the FBI, but Nixon appointed someone else. So Felt leaked a steady stream of tips to the Washington Post writing team of Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein. Meeting secretly, he told them where to look and what questions to ask. Without him, the duo would have gotten nowhere. Because of him, they became folk heroes. With Sirica applying pressure from the bench and felt from inside the FBI, the White House defenses began to weaken, then crack, and then shatter. Special Prosecutor Archibald Cox piled on, appointing 34 Democrat lawyers to investigate nearly every aspect of the Nixon administration. In April of 1973, White House Counsel John Dean, the chief desk officer of the cover-up, turned on his boss, testifying against the president in Senate hearings before a huge national TV audience. As the political jeopardy grew, Nixon naturally became more involved. One biographer wrote, To Nixon, this was all routine hardball. But really, this was quicksand. The more he struggled, the deeper he sank. He was caught in the cover-up. When it emerged that many of Nixon's private conversations were recorded, his fate was sealed. Citing executive privilege, he tried to keep the tapes from Sirica and Congress. On July 24, 1974, the Supreme Court ruled against the president. The support of Republican senators far from assured and deeply concerned that an impeachment trial would paralyze the country in the middle of the Cold War, Nixon was boxed in. He resigned from office on August 9th, the first and only president to do so. The media had its victory and a newfound sense of power. The country has not been the same since. I'm Hugh Hewitt for Prager University. Thank you for watching this video. To keep PragerU videos free, please consider making a tax-deductible donation. Now that we've laid out what Watergate uh, was or what the interpretation of it was, <clears throat> let's look at an event that the Washington Post held and this was an all-star cast. They had Elizabeth Drew there. They had Ken Hughes, who I don't use much of, but he was he's a historian at the Miller Center that wrote a book called Chasing Shadows, who makes a lot of outrageous claims about the Chenault Affair. The legendary Carl Bernstein and the legendary Bob Woodward. And, and this woman, who is, I think, one of the managing editors uh, of the paper, and, oh, my God, does she ever make some outlandish... Uh, claims, but I mean, that these folks would try to tell you that they are purveyors of the news and that they are unbiased is a joke. And and you should listen to this because it is a mocking of Richard Nixon for two and a half hours. We're not going to show you the whole two hours. We're going to pull through some things. And we're also going to intersperse those with the things that they're talking about so that you can see uh, what Nixon was doing or saying and how uh, utterly offensive this is. And I do this because, you know, this is Nixon versus the press, and you hear a lot of talk about how Nixon did a lot of things to himself, and, and, and some of that's true, but clearly this organization had an agenda, and they've lived off that agenda for 40 years, and they're the worst offenders of this 
unbiased claim, this claim of unbiased that is just naturally, it's just absolutely laughably untrue. And I, I will try not to be, like I said, I am a little bit of an editorializing here, um, but it is what it is. Enjoy. You know what? I'm he gonna... never resigned. Yeah. <laughs> if anybody can read lips, they can tell us what it's happened. It's all a trick. Um, so... So without that traumatic moment, some of us remember it, some of us have seen it on TV when the wireless feed did work. Um, I just, I just want to um, take a very brief moment, very briefly, um, for, for those who were immersed in the story at the time, Elizabeth, Carl, Bob, just give us very briefly what that particular night of his resignation felt like to you. Elizabeth? This is the night that he announced he was going the to resign. The night he announced he was resigning. He's going to resign. And it was the next day that was truly bizarre when he had a goodbye, farewell speech to his staff. Um, and it was pretty mawkish and kind of embarrassing. And he was reading from Teddy Roosevelt's memoirs. Uh, he associated with Teddy Roosevelt, the man in the arena, and he never gave up and this sort of thing. Um, and he... Teddy Roosevelt was this sickly boy who became this big, strong figure, and Nixon had been a sickly boy, and I knew the rest of you. Um, <laughs> he was talking, he read from Teddy Roosevelt about what his, my, when, when my dear wife died, I mean, what that was about. It was very weird. The TR quote was a pretty good one. There's another one I found as I was reading my last night in the White House. And this quote is about a young man. It was a young lawyer in New York. He'd married a beautiful girl. And they had a lovely daughter. And then suddenly, she died. And this is what he wrote. <clears throat> This was in his diary. He said, she was beautiful in face and form and lovelier still in spirit. As a flower she grew and as a fair young flower she died. Her life had been always in the sunshine. There had never come to her a single great sorrow. None ever knew her who did not love and revere her for her bright and sunny temper and her saintly unselfishness. Fair, pure, and joyous as a maiden, loving, tender, and happy as a young wife, when she had just become a mother, when her life seemed to be just begun, and then the years seemed so bright before her, then by a strange and terrible fate, death came to her. And when my heart's dearest died, <clears throat> died, the light went from my life 
forever. That was T.R. <clears throat> in his 20s. He thought the life had gone from his life forever, but he went on. And he not only became president, but as an ex-president, he served his country always in the arena, tempestuous, strong, sometimes wrong, sometimes right. But he was a man. And as I leave, let me say, that's an example I think all of us should remember. We think sometimes when things happen that don't go the right way. We think that when you don't pass the bar exam the first time, I happened to, but I was just lucky. I mean, my writing was so poor, the bar examiner said, we just got to let the guy through. <laughs> we think that when someone dear to us dies, we think that when we lose an election, we think that when we suffer a defeat, that all has ended. We think, as T.R. said, that the light had left his life forever. Not true. It's only a beginning, always. The young must know it. The old must know it. It must always sustain us because the greatness comes not when things go always good for you, but the greatness comes and you're really tested when you take some knocks, some disappointments, when sadness comes. Because only if you've been in the deepest valley can you ever know how magnificent it is to be on the highest mountain. Now, I'd learned in working on this uh, version of the book that at the same time that was going on, he had a military aide in there stealing papers that supposedly had signed over to the document, uh, the archives, but he wanted to write his memoirs uh, called RN, um, like TR, and so this guy was loading these documents into trucks and sending them out to San Clemente. They'd been doing it for a while, but then finally a Ford person caught them and and uh, said, you can't keep doing that. So it was a very strange event. And then they went out to the helicopter, and who can forget that, you know, the iconic scene of our era. Now, what Mrs. Drew is not telling you about this is that they, they changed the law about papers and documents um, that of, of the president after Nixon left office. Nixon wasn't stealing anything. He was taking his own documents and taking them with him to California. At, but prior to Watergate and the laws that were changed, not that day down the road, the four people just stopped him. But at that point, papers, documents, everything that the president that concerned his administration was owned by the president. So this is another misrepresentation, and I'm being kind, from Elizabeth Drew. Now let's move on to some other Washington Post employees. Carl, the night of the resignation, 
Um, Bob and I were in the newsroom. Catherine Graham, the publisher of the Post, had come downstairs from her office. Ben Bradley, the editor of the paper. Uh, there were surprisingly few people in the newsroom uh, because we, we knew what was coming. Uh, and, and Catherine actually said uh, to the group of us, no gloating. And uh, How'd that work out? <laughs> and, uh, and there was no need because my feeling was one of absolute total awe that it had come to this uh, that finally the country was, was going to be spared him in office, and also recognition of, of the fact that those in the room had had some real role in, in what was happening. But awe, total awe, and, and, and the fact that the system had worked. Bob? Uh, I was sitting on the floor of Howard Simon's office. He was the managing editor. Uh, watching the speech, and uh, this was before the Bezos era. It was the Graham era. And so they handed out sandwiches that night, and I know... <laughs> I remember the very bad bologna sandwich <laughs> that I was sitting there eating, and uh, not only did Catherine Graham issue the no-gloating rule, but Ben Bradley did, and he was you know, kind of going around the newsroom slowly, not uh, showing any emotion. And Ben and I uh, went to the elevator because we were going to go down and get something to eat. And the elevator opens, and there's Sergeant Shriver, who is somehow broken into the post security system. And it's, uh, Shriver being, it was head of the Peace Corps in the Kennedy era, uh, married to one of the Kennedys very much a, a Kennedy person. He sees Ben and he goes, Yay! Blew <laughs> <laughs> the cover. Uh, and, uh, and Ben is just kind of, you know, trying to pretend <laughs> and, uh, and uh, Shriver just wouldn't stop and he just said, Oh, I had to be here this night with you. Uh, Bob Woodward, uh, told you who Sergeant Shriver is, but just in case you don't know the rest of his biography, he was George McGovern, who Richard Nixon defeated in 1972. He was his 1972 running mate for vice president. So Nixon Agnew defeated McGovern Shriver in 1972. Yes. I, I just, I don't even know what to say. But of course, the main character was Richard Nixon, and complex, and impenetrable, and not understandable, but you've done about as good a job as anyone of trying to understand the kind of tortured mind that led us to this national crisis, and to look at Nixon's um, activities even post-Watergate as a way of understanding him. So tell us a little bit about Nixon and what impelled him to do these things from your point of view. Thank you. Um, there was some talk about <clears throat> when did Watergate begin. You might say it was born in this little town in Yorba Linda, California, when he was born. Uh, <laughs> now, I say this with some empathy. I think he was trapped in his own personality, in his own hang-ups, and his hang-up is too light. But I don't do any psychobabble. This was a man 
who all his life felt that everybody else was getting a break and they all had more advantages than he did, and he had to show them that he was going to be, he went out for football, I mean, he couldn't run, he couldn't throw, he couldn't, but he was going to go out for football, he didn't care how much he got banged up, he was showing them. High school, he rebelled against the most, the she-she, uh, she-she, or the most important, distinct, uh, classy fraternity and started his own. Um, he was always resenting and feeling that others were having advantage over him, and he had to show them, and he was going to get even in some way. So it's not hard to see how this evolved when you get into the Oval Office and you have all this machinery at your control. And by then, it wasn't just, he confused, he confused political opponents with enemies. Elizabeth Drew here in the Washington Post had this narrative that Nixon was striking out against all these enemies, all of which were in his head. But here is a responsible historian, Richard Reeves, who wrote a really good book on President Nixon. He had a huge store of enemies. And many of them uh, felt they were doing the Lord's work or were being patriotic by trying to destroy Richard Nixon. Somebody had testified that they put the Houston plan away, but they didn't. Somebody said really never was put away. Um, the breaking of the Watergate was one of a series, but he, the cover-up had to happen because, as you say, things had happened before. They had broken into, this is the, the big one, the psychiatrist of Daniel Ellsberg, who leaked the Pentagon Papers. Now, they went berserk on the Pentagon Papers. That was also Henry Kissinger, who was very, very upset about it. He had ordered the study, okay? And these two people, Els um, Les Gelb and Bort Halpern, had worked on the study. Their understanding was that two chapters were still sitting in the Brookings Institution. And you hear Nixon on a tape saying, God damn it, go in there and blow it up and get that safe. Um, and Firebomb the goddamn fire, place, he I, says. I want it done on a thievery basis, yes. he says at one point. Go in and get the goddamn files. So they had sent one of these Russian characters, Anthony Lazowitz. He's one of my favorites, because he, <laughs> he was always doing something extremely stupid. Um, and he tasted, he said, yeah, they got files in this night. The thing almost happened. No, there's a lot wrong with the statement she just made. First of all, Henry Kissinger did not order the Pentagon Papers uh, put together. It was done by Robert McNamara in the Democratic administration prior, the two Democratic, actually, administrations prior to uh, President Nixon ever uh, becoming president. In fact, the Pentagon Papers never even mentioned the Nixon administration. Uh, later on, she talks about how this almost happened, and there was a lot of controversy about it, but the truth is that the firebombing of the print of the Brookings Institute never happened, never even came close to happening. And I exaggerate not when I wrote This Way Lies Fascism. These are bully boys. You know, it's not quite the Reichstag fire, but it's, you know, in that in that area of morality. So it was a very scary and um, still is. Uh, the system worked but barely. There was a lot of cowardice that went on, but there was also a lot of greatness. Um, it was not clear, really, till the end. You can look back now and say, well, obviously he was going to get caught. It wasn't obvious at all. Peter Rodino made it possible for the Republicans to be statesmen by pushing aside political questions and de-partisanizing it. It didn't just happen. They had, he had to make a number of them, enough of them, comfortable in voting for the Articles of Impeachment by narrowing them, keeping them uh, unarguably the case, 
And the big one was to say, you don't have to prove that he was in on that crime or he knew this or that. He is accountable. That was Article 2, which was the big one. But a lot of this, Carl, I agree with you, but this wasn't just valor on the part of the Republicans. A lot They didn't want to go through this trial. Nixon still had a base, 30 35%, something in there. And they were very strong for him. You had the midterms coming up. There's always a midterm. And they were terrified, rightly so, because they, the Republicans just got washed out to sea. In that midterm, we had 70-something Watergate babies coming into the House as, as Democrats. So there was, you know, there was greatness and there was cowardice. It was all a mixture of, you know, want, not wanting to really confront it. Just get it out of here. We want, a lot of Republicans talked to me that way as I kept my journal. It wasn't, I just talked to people all the time, and then, you know, I divided up into sections, seasons, and periods. They wanted him out. They just wouldn't be done with it. They hated it. It was a terrible, they'd go home, well, how are you going to vote? And his people would turn up. It was sort of not the Obamacare of that time, but it was it was unpleasant. And they were scared, and they just wanted to get him out of there to save their own skins, I'm sorry to say. I just have to tell this story, because it just drives me crazy when I hear the hero worship of Peter Rodino. He was a Democratic congressman from Jersey City, New Jersey, <laughs> and uh, you know, Elizabeth Holtzman, she gets on TV and talks about Peter Rodino. And, of course, you hear Elizabeth Drew talking about Peter Rodino and how he works hard to keep things so even keel and, and bipartisan. And he allowed the Republican statesmanship, and we got away from this cowardice. You hear cowardice. You hear this in this throughout. But let me tell you, one of it's got to be the funniest story that I have ever heard um, when it comes to Peter Rodino and his agony and pain concerning this a friend of mine stumbled on something and he wrote in his Facebook page and I wish you could see it and I'm going to describe it to you here in a minute but Rodino recalled for a columnist for the Chicago Tribune that after he adjourned the hearing for the night he went back to his office and called his wife quote but I could not even speak with her I broke down I couldn't finish my heart was too heavy with the agony of the moment so, imagine my surprise recently when I saw on eBay a listing for a gavel that Mr. Rodino presented to the staff director of the committee. Included was a letter explaining that this was one of the gavels Mr. Rodino used while presiding over the hearings. Chairman Rodino inscribed the gavel to the staff director, autographed it, and dated it July 27, 1974. My interest was piqued, so I did a little more research. Apparently, the chairman presented a gavel to each member of the committee as well as to several members of the committee staff. This means he used at least 50 gavels during the hearing. So while Mr. Rodino was in agony, he nevertheless had the presence of mind to work his way through a box of at least 50 gavels, creating souvenirs even as he was creating history. This doesn't quite comport with the story he told during, the, during and after the hearings. But it does, at least to me, support the argument that the hearings were really a political exercise designed to deliver the final blow in the long-term national nightmare that ended up reversing the historic mandate President Nixon had received not quite two years before. This is just a little historical footnote, nothing more, to the events that transpired so many years ago, four decades ago. And I think it speaks volumes about not only Mr. Rodino, but a whole number of people who were sitting on this panel from the Washington Post as well. Fortunately, because of this medium, 
I can't show you what uh, my friend posted um, that he had gotten off of off of eBay, but it is a framed letter, autograph from Peter Rodino, and a gavel saying uh, with the date on it uh, from the hearings. And he must have ordered these things by the box load so he could give them out as souvenirs um, during the hearing. It speaks volumes. Kind of rage in Nixon. There, there was a sense of. Uh, he said it in an inter- in a very self-revealing moment the day he resigned. That speech Elizabeth was talking about, which was uh, very strange. I mean, he was sweating. He had called all of his senior staff, cabinet officers, and friends into the East Room. Uh, had his wife. This was published, uh, or this was broadcast on live national television, and. Nixon's closest friends were worried uh, that Nixon was going to be the first person to go stark raving mad and bonkers on live national television. I mean, he was just talking about his mother and his father, but at the end, in a moment of clarity, he kind of waved his hand like, this is why I called you here. And he said the following, he said, always remember, others may hate you, but those who hate you don't win unless you hate them, and then you destroy yourself. And that's exactly what ha- happened. The piston in the Nixon presidency is revealed, on, particularly on the tapes, is hate. It, it, it is the driving force, and he realized at that moment he's leaving that the hate in hating others, he destroyed himself. And it is precisely what happened in in this case. Always give your best. Never get discouraged. Never be petty. Always remember, others may hate you. But those who hate you don't win unless you hate them. And then you destroy yourself. Now that's Bob Woodward, who is a reporter uh, with the Washington Post. And while I do, I will say that I think that that is a valid point as far as, you know, when you hate others, and you can destroy yourself. But he laces it with all of this that just so obviously shows this is not a reporter with an, a non-bias, that he has an extreme bias toward President Nixon because nobody thought Nixon was going to go stark raving mad. Uh, Nixon had gotten through Watergate extraordinarily well. If you listen to Alexander Haig, um, he marveled at how Nixon uh, performed. And, and there is a story that I think needs to be addressed concerning Alexander Haig and Bob Woodward. Um, did, you say, did he say to you, was it particularly, uh, yeah.
I wish I hadn't because I've read it over and over again. I also told them that as a matter of proof, I told the White House doctors that if Mr. Nixon had any pills, to, to take them away because uh, I had to be responsible uh, for the outcome of the situation, which was really uh, dreadfully trying to the president. Uh, but it wasn't because I suspected he would do it. It was just a prudent step. Now, that has been propelled into a lot of folklore associated with his psyche. Several okay. And I'm sorry I did it. Several okay. times. Thank you very much for coming. Pleasure to have you. Appreciate it. So, uh, it, as I've done the books on Nixon, they're very carefully done. We now know after the history is out that this, that many of these things, in fact, uh, happened. As uh, he disclosed that he told us about taking away Nixon's pills. Now, whether that was prudent or not, that he, there was some concern that he had about the possibility of a presidential suicide. You just don't go around taking away the president's pill. So I'm not worried about the journalism here. I, 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 I think it's a powerful movie. All I can say to that is that is just shameful. I mean, that is just shameful. They wrote in their book, and he's perpetuated for years now, and, you know, it, Nixon's dead and gone, and so is Alexander Haig and everybody involved with this except for Woodward and Bernstein. But they have perpetuated this story that President Nixon was suicidal based on, as Alexander Haig explained, a conversation he had where he was just taking prudent steps. Here's the chief of staff. He's got to make sure we get through the next 48 hours, 24 hours uh, in one piece, and he took some steps to do that, and he made the mistake of talking to Woodward. But, but you see... In everything that you're hearing here about the Washington Post, distortion after distortion after distortion. And that's what this story was, a total distortion of the facts. Um, and Mr. Haig, thankfully, made that clear to Cokie Roberts, to David Brinkley, to Sam Donaldson on ABC, when there was a motion picture out by Oliver Stone. And what's even more amazing is, as flawed as this movie is, Bob Woodward endorsed that too. Just shake your head at it. Um, 30 days after Nixon resigned, Ford, Gerald Ford was president, it was September 1974, some of you may recall, he went on television early on a Sunday morning announcing he was giving Nixon a full pardon for Watergate. Now he went on television early on a Sunday morning hoping no one would notice. <laughs> well, it, it was noticed, but not by me, I was asleep, and Carl called me up and said, have you heard? And I said, no, I was asleep. And uh, Carl, who then and still has the ability to uh, say what occurred in the fewest words and with the most drama, <laughs> said, the son of a bitch, pardon the son of a bitch. <laughs> Happy to report, I figured it out. Hello. Mr. Ziegler, sir. Hi. you are. Hi, Ron. Yes, Mr. President. Yeah. I just talked to Connie. He fully understands the Washington Post uh, situation. There was no reporter today at the uh, at the uh, uh, ceremony. There was a photographer there, but apparently they uh, screwed up on their desk assignment today, and uh, there was no reporter present from the Post. I want it clearly understood that from now on, ever, 
no reporter from the Washington Post is ever to be in the White House. Is that clear? Absolutely. It, unless it's a press conference. Yes, sir. And now, the briefing's here. But, uh, not a briefing. Uh, but never, so never in the White House. No church service. Nothing with Mrs. Nixon does. You tell Connie, don't tell Mrs. Nixon, because she'll approve it. No reporter from the Washington Post is ever to be in the White House again. And no photographer either. Mm-hmm. No photographer. Is that clear? Yes, sir. None ever to be in. Now, that is a total order, and, the, and if, if necessary, I'll fire you. You understand? I, I do understand. Okay. Yes, All right. After listening to all that and the condescending attack mode attitude of the Post, it sure makes that phone call and Nixon's attitude make a lot more sense, don't it? This is Randall Wallace, uh, your host for Bridging the Political Gap. I want to thank you first for tuning in to our podcast and invite you to come to our website, randallwallace.com. There you can get a copy of our book, Always Vote Your Conscience. Don't take it personally and don't fight the same old battles over and over again with a lot of policy suggestions and things that I think everyone can embrace, an argument for why we need to be working together instead of fighting with each other. Also, you can take a look at the first 11 episodes of this podcast, which was a podcast documentary that looked at the World War II generation of bipartisan leadership that built the American century and the lessons we can learn from them to apply to today's situations. Again, thanks for tuning in to our podcast. And if you've enjoyed our show, please leave us a review at wherever you get your podcast. And now, let's get back to the show. on your question, which I think is a terrific question, which is the tapes that I actually find more interesting in some sense than the Nixon tapes are the LBJ tapes. Because in the LBJ tapes, you don't see a terrible, corrupt, tortured mind railing about people and failing to think about the good of the country. You actually see a president being a president, using the levers of power, and that is the sort of thing that I think we really... Will you know? Report, I'm a, as big a believer in reporting, though not as good a reporter um, as Bob and Carl. But that's the thing that we will really miss from not having that again. Let's get another question. Um, yes, ma'am, right here in the black. <laughs> Y'all have to excuse me, but that's the funniest thing I've ever heard. Uh, let me say this. I like Lyndon Johnson. I think that's very clear. We did an entire season on Lyndon Johnson and the extraordinary presidency uh, of him. But I also own uh, lots of hours of the Lyndon Johnson tapes. I have Michael Beschloss's, uh cassette tape collection. I bought some of the tapes when I went to the Lyndon Johnson Library. And uh, they are extraordinary. And he does a lot of good things, as Richard Nixon did. I mean, Richard Nixon is one of our four greatest presidents. But 
to say that Lyndon Johnson doesn't talk about people, doesn't act corruptly at times, doesn't say things that are extraordinarily uh, on the line, if not over the line, on the racist part of it, um, is a whitewash of history that speaks of all humes about the Washington Post. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to be right editorial. It is a rotten organization, and it rots from the head down. Catherine Graham, vacationing at the LBJ Ranch, um, hanging out with Lyndon Johnson, letting him make phone calls and tell him, uh, tell her what stories to put in the paper. Ben Bradley, cohorting with the Kennedy brothers, um, listening to tapes of Martin Luther King Jr. that were illegally gathered by the FBI, and then he shafts Nixon. I mean, this is a joke of a newspaper, a disgrace of a newspaper. And I hope things have changed, but I doubt it, being after you listen to that session. And, and I'm going to let my anger stop there. Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on, on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again and so long for now. <laughs>